This is the Hofstra Radio Alumni Audio Yearbook, Volume 2, and today is July 25th, 2023. Please tell us your name and the years you were at Hofstra Radio. Hello, Brian. This is Joe Romano. Uh, I started at WRHU in the fall of 1989, and after I finished my undergrad degree in 1993, I stayed on with the station for a few years during um, that transition period when Bruce Avery took over. Um, as a general manager. So I want to say I was probably there until maybe either the summer of 95 or 96. Um, I was doing that Friday night, eight to 11 slot mm-hmm. on, uh, it was uh, called rock solid 88, seven, then it became the rock and roll oasis. Um, and it took Bruce kind of a couple of years to kind of build up that larger stable of students that is now there now. Um, uh, and some of the older guard like me could kind of step aside, but I do remember that spring of 93, and you know this from your work at the station, Mike, uh, it's hard during intersessions and over the summers to get people to cover slots. Amen. So I know they were, they they had said to me, hey, listen, I know you're graduating, but would you hang on over the summer and continue to do the Friday night show? And I said, sure. And then the fall started and they said, well, we're still struggling to try to get somebody to cover. Can you continue to cover? And that kind of went on for a little while. Um, so I'm not really sure. It might've been 95, it might've been 96 um, that I was there. Oh, before I go any further, uh, Mm -hmm. a thank you to you. A thank you to you and a brief little uh, uh, aside here Okay. that I promised to tell you before we started the interview, so I'm going to tell you now. Um, Doing these interviews and listening to all the interviews in volume one, has brought back so many memories for me and for all the people who have been listening to these podcasts and have been involved in WRHU. And then something happened to me very, very recently that I had to share with you. And maybe it is a similar occurrence with some of the people listening to the podcast. There's a scene in the Pixar, the Disney Pixar movie, Ratatouille. Trust me, follow me. (laughs) I'm I'm with you. Anton Ego is the, 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 the critic. And uh, he comes into the restaurant and he's going to uh, uh, critique the food, et cetera. And Remy, the, the chef, <laughs> the rat, <laughs> decides to make him this peasant dish, ratatouille, brings it out to the table. And Ego initially takes a look at it and he goes, what is this nonsense? And he takes a fork full and puts it in his mouth. And the way the video works is he's just transported in this like jet stream of like time travel back to this moment when he was a teenager and he came home from a hard day at school and he comes into the house and the, it's at the kitchen table and his mom just puts this bowl of ratatouille in there. That, that, that single morsel of food, that single little taste of something just poured him back to another time in his life. And I cannot tell you what a gift this entire process of podcast has been for me and I'm sure for many, many other people because I have found myself having so many of those kinds of experiences where someone will make a comment or bring up a name or bring up an event or bring up a location or something that happened. And just like Anton Ego and Ratatouille, I find myself ported back to like something that happened 20, 30 years ago or more with the same kind of level of vivid clarity that seemed to happen to Anton Ego in in, in in, in that movie. Um, and it's just been a gift, man. I just got to tell you, it's just been an absolute gift because nothing that I've experienced in my life has been able to have that kind of a 
an impact. And most of the recollections have all been positive ones. So um, I wanted to make sure that I got that in at the start of the interview. So I didn't forget to tell you that. Um, and also, if later on in our interview, I happen to reference an Anton Ego moment, you're okay. going to know what I'm talking about, because otherwise it would have seemed like it came completely out of left field. So thank you so much. Thank you. Wow. I mean, uh, you know... Uh... It's extremely high praise, uh, especially coming from you who were a friend and mentor in, in high school and at Hofstra. And uh, honestly, I, after that, let's, let's call it a wrap on this thing. It's like going to get better. I'm done. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm sure you have, I'm sure you know what you've done and what you are doing. And I know that it's a labor of love for you and it's great, but it has provided something truly precious. Uh, and it's just, it's just great. So thank you for that. Thank you. And you know, it's, it's funny, I get done doing these interviews and I'm usually pretty drained afterwards and not, not, you know, exhausted, but, uh, you know, I walk out uh, of the room and, and my wife sees me and says, how did it go? And I usually take kind of a, a deep breath and go, that was awesome. That was <laughs> great. I had so much fun. And she's like, well, who did you talk to? And I was like, well, you know, and then it starts me on the story train. And each one of these things, which I didn't anticipate at the beginning, each one of these interviews has been such uh, a joyous ride. And whether it's someone like yourself or Dave Koenig or, or someone that I know really well and I know the stories, or at least a version of them, or someone I've never met before. It's such, like you say, that that recognition and that feeling and that camaraderie and uh, that, that, that empathy, uh, you feel it. So it's, yeah, you're right. It's been a labor of love and it's every single one has been surprising and pleasing. And, uh, again, the, it's the highest praise I'm going to get. So, uh, I'm <laughs> thank you. You've earned it. You've earned thank it, buddy. You. You've earned it. Thank you. Um, all right. Uh, I got to have to go to physical therapy now and, and fix my shoulder, slap myself on the back here. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> Let's get back to the thing. Um, what positions and titles did you have at the station? Okay. Um, every time I'm asked this question, I have the easy answer. Thank you so much to the amazing Suziza, who provided many of us back in the day with plaques listing mm -hmm. some of the things that we had done at the radio station. So I can tell you for sure. Uh, Fall of 1990, I became producer of The Rock Show. It was an, an album-oriented rock, formatted rock show. At the time, the show was called Rock Solid 88.7, and I, I, the name was later changed to Rock and Roll Oasis. Um, fall of 91, I uh, became co-host of Good Morning Hofstra. And then in 92, I remained as co-host of Good Morning Hofstra, which I guess is now called Morning Wake Up Call. Uh, also became associate producer of that program. So there was a little bit more involved in producing... Um, some of the bits that went on, uh, uh, arranging some of the fundraising activities, some of the promotions that we were doing was a little bit more involved with Sue and putting the, the show together. Uh, during those couple of years, I still did the rock and roll show. I think I had a jazz slot as well one day a week, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. But once I started doing more work on that morning show, I kind of had to turn over producer duties to, uh, someone else, uh, as far as doing the rock show. So I think I just produced that rock show just for the one year. Okay. Um, let's talk about uh, signing up to be uh, or applying to be the producer of Rock Solid 88.7. What was your, your motivation and your hope when you decided to do that? Okay. This is 
for me, and I, I would imagine the same for you, um, I consider myself so unbelievably fortunate that I walked into the door of that radio station at the time when I did. Mm -hmm. um, the people who I met who were running the station at the time, Andrew Schmertz was the program director, Eileen DeCallis was uh, station manager. Um, I don't know whether Steve Goldman was running the sports department or Tony Sibilla was running the sports department. You had Renee DePew, who was the music director. From minute one, they never came across to me as students running a student radio station. They came across as we're in this job, we're capable of doing this job, and we're going to be able to kind of handle it, um, which was amazing. I mean, you, you know, you, 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 you had that, that, that radio station office, which we all love to be in. And Jeff was in the corner throwing his toothpicks at the ceiling. And it was mm -hmm. all wonderful. But Jeff kind of let the students kind of run the show. And that was kind of clear and apparent from the very, very beginning. So it was awesome to be able to look up to those people from minute one and also to see their level of professionalism and their level of commitment to what they were doing from minute one. And all that did was just kind of motivate you. And the reason why I'm messing, uh, bringing up this story is because uh, of how I ended up with the position of producer of The Rock Show. Um, it was because of Andrew Schmertz uh, and the faith that he showed in me. I know Andrew did a lot of work, and maybe when you do volume two with Andrew, we can explain this to you, worked very hard pushing Jeff Krause for us to get some kind of rock music show mm -hmm. back on the air at RHU. I, I know for a while there was a rock formatted thing, but at the time that I started at the station, there wasn't. I think from eight to 11, it was a new age images uh, yep. program. Not sure how to describe exactly what that music was, but for people who loved it, they could probably do a better job than I was did. But I believe it was the fall of 90 that, um, maybe not the fall of 90, excuse me, maybe the spring of 89, that The Rock Show got back on the air. And Andrew had a good buddy of his uh, by the name of Dan Kennedy. Mm -hmm. Dan was one of those, I wasn't at the station for that long, but Dan was one of those people that if you walked into the studio and listened to, to him do a break, and saw his capable nature as an engineer and the way he pulled records and the way he organized the show, you just went, the guy should be on a professional commercial radio station right now. Like, what is he doing here? It was just amazing. Um, and I remember Dan starting as the first producer and I'm not really sure whether Dan transferred or whether Dan got a job professionally, but the show had just kind of gotten off the air that spring. And then I remember it was maybe the fall of 90 I did what I would normally do on a normal day. I went down to the to the radio station office with my tray from Bits and Bites and just, you know, whatever we all did. We were radio office rats. We just kind of mm -hmm. like to hang out down there. And Andrew very professionally said, Joe, hey, can I, can I bother you for a second? I'm like, what is this? You know, why does he want to talk to me? And you're going to have to help me with this. I remember you went out of the office down a hallway and i think then you made a right down to where master control was but then if you made a left down that corner was it called two track was it called four track what, what did we call it back then so when you went down the hall past the basement you went to the right to go to the main on-air studio and to the left there was the two track studio and then when we were there the the, the bigger production facility was the uh, or the more modern one was the eight track the multi-track studio okay i think i did my engineer training in one of those two yeah uh, one of those two studios two track andrew takes me down there says okay sit down have a seat and very professionally says hey listen i 
I appreciate that the work that you've done, you understand the format, you're doing very well on air, you're around here a lot. Uh, I really think you can handle this responsibility. And again, I'm a sophomore at the time. I knew how hard he pushed to get that format on the air. I knew how hard he was working at the station. And you know this yourself, Brian, from being a, a school teacher, <clears throat> and uh, I'm a school teacher myself, is it's one thing that we as teachers know our students can do a thing. Mm -hmm. But before they're going to do the thing, we have to impart upon them the knowledge that we believe that they can do it. We have faith in them. We know that they can handle this material. And sometimes you got to say it out loud. Sometimes you do it in little comments, little notes that you make on kids' essays. And sometimes you just got to come out and say it like, hey, I know you can handle this. And I've had moments in my life like this one with Andrew where it was like, wow, I can't believe that he thinks that I'm, I can handle this. I'm not sure I can handle this, but he thinks I can handle this. And I really look up to this guy. I'm just going to work my ass off now. Like that's mm -hmm. what, that's what it was, right. but he handled it like a pro and the faith that he showed in me was phenomenal. Um, and it just was just a great, uh, moment. Um, for me, it's something that I'll always remember and I'll always be grateful to Andrew and, and also grateful to, you know, the, the people who really kind of set the tone at the station. I mean, uh, I, I, I'm sure that there have been wonderful station managers. Eileen DeCalis is right on that list. Absolutely. Super smart, super capable, so welcoming. Yep. So just made you feel from the second you walked in the door, like you were welcome there and you were an important part of what was going on there. Um, just great. Um, so you're just great people to work with. So I was just motivated like hell to think, oh boy, as a sophomore, like I'm, I have this opportunity. Um, the good morning Hofstra thing, I, I, I want to say that might have evolved just from conversations that I had with Sue. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the summer of my sophomore year, Sue wrote me into doing the, um, uh, at the time Hofstra had a closed circuit TV situation and one mm -hmm. night a week they showed movies which at that time involved going to Blockbuster, renting VCR, wow. <laughs> bringing them to the studio, playing a couple of promos and putting them in the machine and playing them. It wasn't a, 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 that much of a time intensive job, but Sue would give me the list of, you know, university approved video things and brought them in. Um, and I just remember at the time, I believe my sophomore year, Peter Ilya and Shauna Wharton were doing the, um, the morning show. Right. Um, and I think Shauna might have become station manager the following year. Maybe Peter was graduating, but there was an opening. I, maybe Sue had mentioned it. And I, I mean, listen, that was, uh, for me, that was the show that I definitely, in my heart of hearts, really thought I would love to do. I remember going into the studio and hearing um, my freshman year, I think that the hosts were Andrew Schmertz and a gentleman by the name of Doug Oaken, mm -hmm. uh, who you've interviewed before. Doug was another one of those people who just, you know, from the second he walked into a radio studio, it just made sense to him. You know, he just had the voice, he had the timing, he had the just all, all of the things that you would need. I just, I, I'm sure he worked very hard at it, but he also was just incredibly gifted. Their timing on the air together was extraordinary that their banter back and forth you could tell that they were friends and you could tell that they had honed their craft back and forth so they, i think they were the morning show my freshman year and i think peter and shauna were sophomore year and i just remember looking up to those folks and saying man that'd be really cool mm -hmm. uh so i think when sue might have mentioned that they were graduating i might have put a demo tape 
uh, together, maybe re me reading the news at the top of the hour. Um, and that's probably how from junior year I got the the gig on uh, Good Morning Hofstra. Mm. Um, if you don't mind, I'd like to go back to the to the rock show a little bit. And Rock Solid was very tightly formatted. And there was a there was basically, you know, a clock that says play this category, this category, this category. And some of that came out of I think Dan and Andrew wanted to make sure that this sounded like a commercial rock radio station as a as a jumping off point to getting a job. Um, where did you, uh, fall in with that format? And if you don't mind talking a little bit about your show on Friday nights when you did 10 at 10. Uh, absolutely. Uh, the first thing was, I really felt like the year that I was producing the show, someone had kind of handed me the ball and it was already third down and we had five more yards to go. And it was just like the, okay. And you mentioned the clock and you mentioned that there were some systems in place and some thoughts that uh, from Andrew's leadership that was already in place. And I just really felt like I was just kind of carrying the ball forward. A lot of those things had been uh, in place. Um, one of the tweaks I know that we did make early on was that clock, because in an AOR type of format, you are invariably going to come in contact with, I want to play Led Zeppelin's Achilles Last Stand or I want to play something from Pink Floyd's Animals record. And these are 13 minute, 12, 11, 10 minute pieces of music. And if you're going to put something like that on during that hour, it obliterated the clock as we saw it. So we, I know I did work with Andrew that first year to create a little bit more flexibility in that. Mm -hmm. And one of the other things that made it a little bit easier to build that flexibility in that was I just remember that you're making a whole bunch of phone calls, calling representatives from Atlantic Records or Columbia or Electra or whatever and saying, look, I, I, you know, we, we need music to play. We're doing a, a show. The, the radio station had some old 33 records, right? 33 RPM records, but we were transitioning. We had CD players now in the studio, which was a, a, a wonderful revelation mm. and just trying to get more music to try to build up what we could play because a lot of those things, you know, the clock was color coded. I'm sure those who've done radio before we had some limited records that fit certain categories. So that was part of the process of what I did during that year was just trying to try to say like, okay, this is great. We've got the format on the air. How do we tweak it and open things up a little bit to give people a little bit more flexibility? And part of that um, was that 10 at 10 show that I did. Um, that was not, I, I think the original idea came from Dan Kennedy to do 10 songs from a year. And then when, when Dan left the station, I said, I'd, I'd love to pick that up and con continue doing that. But there was a thought that each night we would have something where uh, like a special thing that would happen at 10 o'clock each night. It would be eight to 10 and 10 o'clock. We had a, a, a gentleman who had access to uh, a lot of Grateful Dead uh, live uh, concerts. And for those of you who know, anything about the Grateful Dead, you can bring your own digital recorder and ask them and they'll actually patch you into the soundboard and you can make your own sound recording. And the Grateful Dead's always been cool about that for years. They've just never had any problem with that. So we never had any issues with uh, having the the ability to be able to broadcast any of that stuff. So there was one night that that was on and 10 at 10 was going to be on another night. We were kind of looking for ways to kind of tweak that. So um, the 10 at 10 show was the one that I had picked up on. Um, and I'm not sure, to be honest with you, Brian, I'm not sure at the time that I started it, um, 
whether I was keenly aware of the monster that I was creating for myself. <laughs> because this is, listen, we're 1990, 1991. When's the first iPhone? 2007, 2000? Yeah. I mean, really, you know, you're not going on the internet and looking up what year these records came out in. You're looking at the liner notes from the albums themselves. You're going to the library and trying to pull up resources and finding everything that you can. And one of my really, really earliest influences in anything, and maybe one of the reasons why maybe I had some interest in radio at all was, I always used to listen to Casey Kasem's show on the weekends where he did the top, I guess maybe it was the top 50 records or the top 100 records uh, for the week. And I always remember Casey Kasem having little anecdotes about how the record was put together or how this person collaborated with this person or the significance of this thing or where it charted or whatever it was. And I always found that stuff really, really interesting. So when the idea of doing that 10 at 10 show came to pass, I thought, cool. So I'll, you know, I'll do some research. I'll find out a let's, let's get 10 songs from this year or let's get 10 songs from this artist. And let's give some people a little bit of information um, uh, as the time went on. And I, I think it might've been Sue or it might've been me. <laughs> I'm really not sure, but at some point, the, uh, the, uh, the, the title of resident rock and roll musicologist came into play. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, uh, I, I, I don't know who said it, called it a, a rock. Maybe I was a rock musicologist or something like that. And maybe I picked up the ball and ran with it, but that was kind of like a little, um, a little title that maybe I, I, I might have just given it to myself based off something somebody said or maybe came up with it. It seemed like a great tagline when I was doing the promos for the 10 at 10 show to say, hey, this is Joe Romano, your resident rock and roll musicologist. And we would, you know, do the 10 tunes. Um, and I really, you know, it was great, but it was a lot of work. It was a lot of research and it was typing out scripts and it was really making sure that, you know, you had your facts correct. Mm -hmm. And because uh, I, I didn't get a lot of phone calls doing that rock show on Friday night, uh, but I would get calls if something that I said about an artist that people loved was not accurate. Like so-and-so wasn't in Jefferson airplane that year. It was the year after or such and such and such and such. And you get called on your stuff. So you really had to make sure that you did some research, but um, yeah, that was a pleasant part of the show. I, I don't know, Brian, if we were ever able to get um, a featured program each one of the nights at 10 o'clock. I don't remember if it had gotten that far, but at least that was kind of the goal. Um, and I do remember we did, and, and again, credit again to Andrew Schmertz because I know that he and Dan worked long and hard on getting that initial clock, but Andrew was never the kind of person to ever just go, oh, well, this is going to be my way and this is just going to be it. He was extremely confident and extremely capable in what he did, but he was also willing to like go, all right, well, yeah, this wasn't didn't work out the way that we wanted to, so how do we make it better? And was always mm. willing to tweak it. So that's, I think, what we kind of did the first year. I don't know when the, the name, you might be able to help me with this. I'm not sure I remember when the name changed to Rock and Roll Oasis. But it might have been might have been maybe after a year or so. Would you happen to know? I, I think it was uh, the summer of 92. Because I okay. think that's when I became program director. 92, 93. And as you know, being a rock and roll musicologist, the, the scene shifted a great deal because of the you know, the grunge revolution because of smells like teen spirit and Pearl jam mm. and Soundgarden and the red hot chili peppers and your PJ Harvey's and Liz Fair's and the scene changed. And we had five commercial rock and roll radio stations in the area that were playing classic rock, right? We had K rock. We had uh, WDRE, We had BAB, NEW, Q104. 
and they were all on those sort of similar clocks. And I think mm-hmm. we made a shift that summer saying, well, the music scene has shifted. And so we want to be more free format and WNEW opened up and they would play their, their deep cuts and BAB shifted. And I think WPLJ shifted their format. So I think it was sort of in response to what was going on in the music industry and what a lot of us as, as radio consumers, you know, cause we were, we listened to those commercial stations, what we wanted sure. to hear differently. And I think that's mm. when things changed to the Oasis. Yeah. Yeah. And I do remember, it's interesting that you, you brought that up. It was maybe three years in, maybe four years in, mm-hmm. someone showed me, because again, how did you get this information? Someone showed me a magazine for WBAB and someone at WBAB started to do a show called the 10 at 10. No way. And I thought, I thought to myself, I said, well, that's very, very interesting. It's a very easy title. It's a very, very easy concept. But I always wondered if perhaps... We're, we're, we're on Long Island. Everybody communicates with everybody. People were interning at different stations. I just wonder if, and listen, as a commercial station, we had no copyright on the, on, on the name or any of right. those kinds of things. But I always wondered, and, and I think we all felt this at, at, at working at WRHU at the time, that like we knew we were not competing with the commercial stations, nor could we. But we always felt like we wanted to have the mindset that we were. Right. We mm-hmm. never wanted to to lessen the work that we were doing from a standpoint of like, well, just because we're not playing commercials and we're not paid to be here doesn't mean that we shouldn't be just as professional and provide just the same high level of service to the community that we were providing. So like when mm-hmm. you saw something like that, you know, what is it? Imitations is the sincerest form of flattery. I, I, I always yeah. got a kick out of that. I never pursued it anything beyond that. And I just thought, well, it's great that they have a show with the same title. Good for them. Maybe it's a good idea, right? <laughs> good idea. <laughs> well, I, I have that, that very distinct memory too, that we, we had these very high expectations. And I've talked about this with Jen Murphy Packer and Dave Koenig and other people that we had these expectations that everything we were going to do was going to be awesome and successful and just as good as commercial radio. And then that other thing is, well, we would do this thing and play, I don't know, theme of whatever band or 10 to 10. And then you'd hear it the next day or the next week on one of the commercial stations. And you go, is that a coincidence? Is that, is that just the randomness of the universe saying, well, you guys just did a, you know, 10 song thing about Jimmy page. And then this guy's doing that as well. Or is it, you know, people listening and, and borrowing our, our ideas. But uh, like, like you said, I think we all had very high expectations that we were going to sound as professional as the commercial stations, if not better. Yeah, for sure. Um, uh, and, and just to go back to the, to the clock format, I didn't have a chance to do many rock solid shows, but I remember at first chafing against the idea of like, you have to follow this format and then doing it was a crutch or a guide is the wrong thing, but sort of a guiding hand that said, well, we're going to go here and go there. And some of the best segues of my entire life, and I love a good segue, happened mm-hmm. during the Rock Solid show. And there was one, mm-hmm. I think you even called me on. It was like the Doobie Brothers into, or the, no, it was the Doors. It was a Doors song that ended super cold and I went into a Doobie Brothers song. And I swear within 10 seconds, the phone line lit up and I was like, oh God, what I do, because I was brand new and it was you. And you went, that was a damn good segue. And man, you couldn't get 
me out of the studio after that because my head was just too big. I was like, wow, Joe Romano said I did a good segue. And it was nothing I ever would have put together if it hadn't been for the clock. Mm, Interesting. And, you know, so I I saw definitely the the point and the service of it. But then again, as the culture shifted in that time when you were rock producer and then things started to change, I think we saw opportunities to change it to the Oasis and Mm. and to be a little bit more free format and be like, we're not going to play the top singles. We're not going to play the known songs. We're going to go for the deep cuts and the album tracks. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, uh, listen, uh, as, as someone who started with the show being cold rock solid 88, seven, um, and maybe when you get to do volume two with Andrew, you could ask him, uh, I think the rock and roll Oasis suits the, the idea of the show much better. Thank you. It's one of those names that we, we couldn't come up with a, a name. We said, well, let's do this as a placeholder. We'll give it six months and come up with something better. And to the best of my knowledge, they're still using that name. And it grew on you, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, it just it just was. It just was. For sure. Yeah. What, one other question I want to double back with the Rock Solid, uh, when, your time as producer. Eventually, we had a metal show on Monday nights. We had the Dead show on Tuesday nights. There you go. And I think this came after you uh, with Soul on a Roll on Wednesdays. Okay, now were, there you go. Were Perfect. you Were you part of the crew that put the metal show on the air Monday nights or the Dead show? Was that part of your yeah. – I, I can't remember when those started. It's very possible. However, um, none of the interviews or the podcasts I have listened to, uh, and I have listened to them, them all, I'm proud to say, have provided me with an Anton Ego moment where I've been able to be ported back to that moment in time where I remember that. I do remember that one of the goals that Andrew had and Dan Kennedy had was to have something on at 10 o'clock that was special. And those things, the soul and the roll and the metal show, those were things that now that you're saying them, are triggering in my head that those those things might have already been going on before I became producer, hmm. um, or we might have added to them. But that was the goal. That was definitely the goal to 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 again. You want to provide something that's a little bit different, and one of the things that would be a little bit different would be to not have the clock at ten o'clock and give people a hmm. venue where once a week they could go and only listen to this genre of music, right? Um, and that's what again, would try to distinguish what we were putting out there from what they would get on the commercial stations. Mm-hmm. Um, thanks for that deep dive into the rock show. I don't want to neglect this because I know it was very important for you and you did such a wonderful job as the morning show host. Who are the people that you worked with on the morning show and what was what was that process like? Amazing folks. Amazing folks. There's a... Um, a woman who has not been part of the interviews, mm. but if she ever listens, she should be part of the interviews, uh, named Sarah Sterling. Mm-hmm. One, uh, So we were co-hosts. I guess Sarah's responsibility was to read the events and do the promotional things uh, that we were doing. Um, and I was reading news. But of course, the morning show kind of evolves and sort of takes on a life of its own. So we were both kind of co-hosting that show. Um sharp as attack, one of the nicest people you could yeah. ever meet. And really just, you know, it, it, you, you kind of need, if you have two people who are as talkative and crazy as I am, uh, that's going to clash very, very quickly. Because then you have two people talking over each other, and that's horrible for radio. Whereas 
Sarah had the patience with me, I'll definitely say, and the ability to be the straight person, right? Off of what was going on. And that timing worked great. I believe she was there for the, the year that I did Good Morning Hofstra, my junior year. And then I think a young lady named Vanessa Kalinowski was there mm -hmm. for my senior year. And Vanessa was younger than uh, my group of people who came in. And I think the first years, maybe she was doing traffic or she was doing something for us. And then she came in and doing the events. And I have to say, I just, Vanessa and I didn't really know each other as well and have the same relationship. Sarah was also, Sarah Sterling was also a music major. Talk about, uh, I think Sarah actually is a musicologist. Oh, okay, <laughs> rock and roll musicologist. I think that's what she's doing. But 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 Sarah, if you're out there listening, you got to do an interview with Brian and, and tell your stories. Um, and she may have a different characterization of what happened on the morning program. By the way, I'm sure she does. I'm sure. Uh, uh, but so but Vanessa and I worked very very well. Uh, but I do think Vanessa came into a sort of an existing core of that morning show and tried to find her way in and wasn't as maybe comfortable with, oh, this is when I just have to tell Joe to just, just shut up so we can get on with the rest of the show kind of thing. Um, I know it was either my junior year or my senior year or both. We roped Al Montag in. Um, Al was also adding to the list of the Dan Kennedys and the Doug Oaken, mm -hmm. the immensely talented, gifted people who just walked into a radio station and it just made sense. And you were just like, why is this guy not at a professional radio station like right. now? Yeah. And uh, I noticed that from Al right away. And I may have recruited Al myself to say, well, Al, you're going to be doing this job eventually in a couple of years. Come in and read sports or come in and do traffic or come in and do something. And I know we had Al in there. Um, obviously worked very closely with Sue. I think Sue's job in being the producer of that morning program was a lot like being the hall monitor mm -hmm. uh, where she had to kind of keep things together. Hey, the university doesn't want you talking about that too much, or, you know, uh, you, you, you <laughs> kind of have to mind your P's and Q's, so to speak. But she did allow us the freedom to express ourselves and do different things. And then I want to say both years, if certainly my, probably the, my, my senior year doing the program, but probably both years, um, the incomparable John Booty was the engineer. Yep. And you're not going to, first of all, you're not going to find a better person full stop period than Amen. than john booty yeah. uh but as a capable engineer and as an individual who had the unique and just precious ability to flip on the mic from the other side of the glass and with a single word make you just roll over belly laughing. He was just, his comedic timing was unbelievable. His sense of what was going on was unbelievable. And he really did manage to ship in a great way. And uh, just, you know, I, I really can't say enough. I mean, there are some, there are some people who, who did a tremendous amount of work on the mic. And I do believe to a large degree, a lot of the real talent at WRH, it was not the people who spoke on the mic. It was the people who were on the other side of the glass. And we had so many people who did all of that work on the other side of the glass who actually just made the station happen um, so that, you know, folks like me could just talk a lot. It, it, he, he was incredible. So yeah. all of those people working with those people was really was a collabor collaborative effort doing that morning show. Uh, and kudos to all of them. Um, and I do want to just give a quick shout out while, I, while it just occurred to me in my brain. Uh, another gentleman who probably has to do an interview with you is uh, uh, David Krug. 
Mm-hmm. David was there for is an old high school buddy of mine. He was uh, at Hofstra for about a year and a half, and then he joined the Navy. Um, but I remember when I was producing that rock show, I was really able to count on Dave for a lot of stuff. And Dave started to hang around the radio station and get involved with a number of things. Again, not somebody who did a lot of work on the mic, did a lot of work behind the mic. And while I'm thinking of those people and while that's triggering that stuff in my head, I just really just wanted to make sure that I acknowledged him as well. Yeah, Dave. Dave's a great guy. I had him. I had him on the hook at one point. He had agreed to do an interview, and then uh, it didn't happen. So I will renew my efforts, and and maybe you can help me get him back. Well, next, yeah, next time I I call him, we catch up a couple of times a, uh, a year, and next time I, I I'll 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 just push the issue. Okay, um, I would be really really remiss if I didn't take time to ask you about your election night coverage with Dave Mock. Because I remember you you guys co-hosted a couple of years and the work that you guys put in and the level of professionalism. And I was just looking through my old uh, uh, back of the door memos. If you remember, I used to yeah. put those up and I don't remember someone from GBB or someone that, that there was a there was a, a network and they said this was better. The WR2 coverage of election night was better than the commercial stations. And we're going to lean on you guys in the future. That's how good nice. you guys were. Well, it's uh, full disclosure, folks. When Brian decided he was going to do volume one and then go into volume two, Brian was nice enough and also smart enough to reach out to a bunch of alumni and say, hey, I'm going to start volume two. What are certain things that I should be maybe asking about, some things that I didn't get into, certain ideas? And there was a whole list of questions. And I know we threw some questions back. And mm-hmm. one of the questions I think that was on that that list that we talked about was a story that you always tell about working at the station. Mm-hmm. That's the next one. And up, yeah. doing the election night coverages was always is always something that I talk about. Um, just just a couple of months ago, I was having a conversation with someone about uh, a, like a coming of age kind of a, a moment, and talking about that the the election night night coverage as a story that I always tell. Um, This is going to sound a little corny, perhaps, but I truly believe that there was that night doing the election coverage in uh, in 92 when uh, Mm -hmm. uh, Bill Clinton defeated George H.W. Bush. I believe I started that broadcast as still kind of a kid, and I think I ended the broadcast as a young adult. And I think it really, I, I, I'm, I'm being honest with you, and I'm, I'm just not trying to be campy about this, but I believe it really did happen on the air. Um, the first couple of years that I was at, I guess maybe sophomore and junior year, worked really, really closely with Dave. And um, Dave trusted me to go to Republican headquarters. And that wasn't an easy thing to do. You're interviewing people, most of whom are quite intoxicated, most of whom do not really want to talk to anybody, depending upon the, how the election's going. But you're trying to get sound bites. You're trying to get information from them. You're trying to ask questions that, again, you're, you don't want to ask the stuff that people could go to the major outlets and try to get. So you want to have some insight on the elections. You want to have some insight on the campaigning, maybe some things that you saw, things that the candidates heard. Um, and it was great uh, working with Dave and working off of Dave to kind of try to get some of that information. And then I'm guessing because I was reading the news for Good Morning Hofstra, 
uh, for my senior year, that year in the fall of, of 92, I was either anchoring or co-anchoring uh, the election night coverage uh, on the air. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe I was co-anchoring it with Dave for all I, I remember. Yeah, I, you guys were in studio. I remember that. Okay. And we, what we might have done is we might have taken the 8-track studio and then maybe patched it into Master mm-hmm. Control. Yeah. Uh, right? And I remember it being drop-ins, you know, maybe at the top of the hour kinds of things. And then as the coverage got more and more results started to come in, it turned into, hey, you know, we don't want you guys to do 10 minutes for now. At this point, we're just going to let it run. You guys are just going to be on the air. Um, so as it got to maybe 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, all the way to maybe, I might have been on to 1 a.m. That, that morning. Um, we the, the coverage started to change. And it, some of it was a sense of, okay, well, these are the facts and so-and-so is at 53% now and so-and-so just won this state and so-and-so just picked up these kinds of house seats. But for me, it was I was going through a little bit of a metamorphosis at the time. Um, <clears throat> in the summer of 90, I was a 19-year-old kid and that was the summer Saddam Hussein invades Kuwait. President George H.W. Bush makes it very clear that the United States is going to respond. There's no mandatory draft, mind mm-hmm. you. But as an 18-year-old, you know, you you register for the draft. And I've got friends of mine, Dave Krug, for example, some yep. other people I went to high school with, yep. who enlisted in the, armed, in the armed forces. And there were people at that time saying, well, we're just going to push him out of Kuwait. Why don't we push Saddam Hussein all the way out and get rid of him? This is 11 years before 9-11. This is the father now we're talking about. But there was discussion of that. And as the discussion of that came into being, there was also discussion of, uh, this is not going to take a handful of troops now. We're going to need much more boots on the ground if we're going to get this guy out of here. And, you know, now it's people I know who are going off and fighting and potentially dying and doing these kinds of things. It, the stakes change. That's the best way I can describe it. The stakes change. Mm-hmm. And I'm a senior in college and I'm going to have college uh, uh, tuition, student loans to pay for, and I'm going to start working. So you go from being someone who was like, what do I know? Uh, this this person's running against this person, whatever, it's politics. And you don't even have a vote. You're not even voting at that age. To someone who now has agency, you're now voting. This now affects you, and it now affects people you know. And there was a, definitely a generational shift as well, I have to say, right? Because George H.W. Bush was the last of that, um, what we call the greatest generation, right? Yep. And from Bill Clinton on, all the presidents that we've had have been baby boomers. So there was this generational shift between like, oh, well, the person who is um, in power, so to speak, is my grandfather. You can sort of see that. You can sort of go, okay, it's that person. And all of a sudden, the person who's in power is someone who could be your father. And now the next generation is you. You're next up. And I found myself, as the the results are coming in, as the votes are coming in, and, and things like that, thinking like, this is a real shift. This is not only a real shift in our country, but it's also a real shift for me personally. And I found working off of Dave, who was the consummate professional, giving mm-hmm. a lot of excellent, detailed coverage of this is what this means in the political landscape. I found myself playing off of what Dave was doing to say, as a college student living this moment right now, this is what this is like. 
this is what this feels like to my generation. We've got some stakes in the game, right? We've got some skin in the game now. We've got some responsibility. And I found as the coverage went on, speaking more and more about that aspect of it and what that meant to us. And I remember as clear as day, talk about an Anton Ego moment, as clear as day, us trying to just get, I don't know, we MacGyvered, probably took the uh, concession speech, George H.W. Bush's concession speech off the television. And we Mm -hmm. just patched it in and got it onto the thing and watching that and going, yeah, I'm in it for good now. I'm an adult now. This is for real now. This is not, you know, a game anymore. I'm not a college kid anymore. I'm going out into the real world. And, and, and these decisions that are being made have like real life consequences. Um, and I just, I find that it would, you know, certain moments, listen, when we were in high school, we all have our little rites of passage, right? You know, we drink a little bit more than we should. We smoke some things that we might've spoken and that pill that someone gives us with we go, yeah, I'll try it and regret it, right? All those rites of passage, we get our licenses, we lose our virginity, all these different kinds of things. But to be quite honest with you, we may think we're adults at that moment, but we're still just kids at that moment. And you know, we're both high school teachers, you know what the deal is. I mean, high school kids think they're adults, but they're really not. And I really do think really up until that moment, up until that election night coverage, I might've thought I was an adult, but I don't think I was. And I think at one o'clock in the morning when we signed off that radio station, I think I, I, I walked out of that radio station and going, yeah, th- these are the stakes now. I'm an adult now. I'm part of this. Um, and that happened at the radio station. It happened while I was on the air. I mean, I, and I, I just, I, I, what else can you say about that? Other than that was just an incredible moment. And I just remember, again, I just remember Dave's professionalism, Dave's understanding of I see where Joe's going with this. I see what his perspective is going to be. And I'm going to do this other perspective. And I think that's probably why it played as well as it did, because there was a a, a mutual understanding. I don't think we ever vocalized it out loud, but I do think that there was maybe a mutual understanding of, okay, here's the perspective Joe's going to give. Here's the perspective I'm going to give. And then we're going to shove it out all together um, and throw it at people. Yeah. So I, I think to that extent, it it I do think it worked. I think it worked pretty well. It was fantastic. And and I remember uh, working with Dave in the planning stages of, of you know, who's going to be where and, and what do you need and so on and so forth. And it got to the point where Dave had such a, uh, a strong idea of where, you know, he wanted the night to go in terms of, of manpower and so forth. And I, I had a, a part-time job and that I couldn't get out of that night, but I was listening at work. I had a little radio and I was listening to you guys on drop-ins and then I left and came down to the station. And being... Uh, sort of a, at times a micromanager, I walked in and I remember going, oh, they've got this. Every single person who's working on this, whether they're at Democratic headquarters or people getting sound off, off the, the street, everyone was so on top of their games that it was just such a pleasure to be among uh, such great professionals. And it's hard to say that about, or uh, at the time probably, about undergrads doing this, but we were, we were just as, just as good. And it was just such a phenomenal job. And I'm, I'm really glad that that is a story that you always talk about because, uh, you know, if, if I can advocate people telling Dave mock stories, uh, that is, that, that is listen, my life mission. Yeah. Yeah. That, and that's, and that, that is Dave mock is the start of the sentence and the end of the sentence and the end of the story, because there's another individual who in everything he did represented professionalism and most importantly, pride and 
what he was doing. And yeah. he exuded that and he represented that and he never deviated from that. And if you, you had no choice but to do everything you possibly could, but to attempt to live up to that. Um, and yeah, I mean, none of us ever, none of us ever did. None of us ever did, but it wasn't for a lack of trying. Yeah. He wanted us yeah. all to do really well. And he was as much a cheerleader and he took such pride in other people's success and understanding. So, um, yeah. thank you for sharing that. That's just, I, I've, I've literally got goosebumps all over just thinking about that guy. Just so on the other side of things, are there stories that you've forgotten about or recently unearthed or things that you, you rarely tell about your time at Hofstra radio? Uh, yeah, one thing did come to mind. Uh, and as it did come to mind, it also came to mind with an appreciation of the irony of this question of here's something that you don't talk about a lot. And then you're going to talk about it on a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) So that's, it's great. This is great. Um, but, but it's, it's a really good, um, it's a really good question. I happen to have I'll, I you you could say it was the fortune misfortune however you want to characterize it to have been doing my rock show the evening on the day that they found Kurt Cobain yeah. dead and they found out that he had taken his own life and it's listen in the history of music in general you talked about the 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 the, the cultural shift and the shift that was going on in music because of grunge music because of what was going on in uh, Pacific Northwest and, and that that era, right? And how that was changing the, the music landscape. And it was. On the list of things, you know, um, the assassination of John Lennon and mm-hmm. uh, 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 Buddy Holly and, and the Big Bopper and Richie Valens dying in the plane crash or whatever it might be. I mean, it's on the list of significant events in music, popular music history. Um, why don't I tell this story a lot? Um, it was a very, very memorable show. It was a memorable show because I did get a lot of phone calls. I did get a lot of people requesting Nirvana music. I think we just obliterated the clock and just played. I don't think we did a 10 out of 10. I think we did 10 Nirvana things. Remembrances. Remembrances were coming in over the AP wire from uh, artists who were talking about how important he was and how important the band was and so on and so forth. The reason I don't talk about it that much is because while I was on the air, I, ha- I made a couple of comments on the air in reference to something to the effect of none of us know the pressures of fame, how hard that must be to deal with, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Hmm. Seemed, looking back on it now, I had no basis for saying that whatsoever. I had no idea what was going on inside the mind of... Kurt Cobain or his family or whatever. So to even make that suggestion in that context was me attempting to a editorialize a situation that I had no information about, but also in some way, try to inject my presence into a story that had nothing to do with me at all. We know a lot more and we discuss more a lot about mental health now than we did 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was certainly, there's still a stigma to mental health issues. There's still a stigma to uh, uh, people who have suicidal thoughts or, or act on it and so forth. But 30 years ago, it was even more so. It was, oh my God, that person did that. What could, you know, that, it, you know, ostracization type of thing. And I don't believe my comments 
that evening fell into that category. But just the mere fact that I was making a suggestion that I in some way had some kind of insight into what was going on, to me, felt unbelievably inappropriate. Um, and just not something that I'm, I'm frankly proud of. And I just remember going on the air one break and then doing another break where I made another comment in that regard and then shutting the mic off and playing the record and going, you jerk. What, what are you talking about? You have no idea what this guy's going through. You know, he's got a family. He's got bandmates. He's got people around the world who all loved him. What, 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 you don't know. You don't know what happened to him or why it happened to him. Um, so it's a moment in time where to say to be, be able to be on the air, to be part of the tributes that were going on and uh, the remembrances and all those things might have been a positive thing. But for me, it always represented a point where maybe um, uh, given some more thought into what was going on, I probably should have uh, handled those remarks differently. In fact, handled those remarks differently by not making them at all. Um, and just- If I could defend you for a second, I think in, in a lot of his interviews and the public persona of Kurt Cobain and Nirvana, there was a lot of that railing against the mainstream media and being a big corporate rock star. I think he'd expressed that a lot. And I, I have to believe that you being aware of that were sort of relaying that in the way that you would. And, and I don't think, uh, uh, I don't think you should be as hard on yourself. I think well, that's, that was, that was very- a common thought. Very nice of you to say, but I think one of the things that we all do when we all did when we were on the air is we all, well, if you were doing what you were supposed to do, you were air checking on a regular basis. You were listening to what you were doing. You were trying to hone your craft as best you could. And uh, I do remember air checking that show and then listening back to those couple of things and just kind of saying like, listen, um, at this point, report what you know. Say what you know, talk about what you know, and don't speculate. So I appreciate you trying to give me a pass on that. But again, I, I don't I don't feel uh, to this day I don't feel great about it. But um, uh, and it's but there you go. Now it's out there. Okay, okay. Well, I'm I'm going to switch gears on you then. If okay. that's something that you're not you you wish you could take back or just not as proud of it, what is a a, a major achievement or a proudest accomplishment of your time at Hofstra Radio? Oh boy. Um, uh, well, okay. There's a story that I, 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 that came to me sort of in an Anton ego type of moment that I think I, I might want to throw out here, uh, as a, as a, as a really proud moment. And it was a proud moment for an interesting, interesting reason. I think, uh, are you a fan of the, the TV show secession? Yes. Okay, so you know Logan Roy and you know Brian nice. Cox, the actor. Okay. There's a scene in the last season where Logan Roy realizes that the only thing he's going to have left to his empire is this cable news network. And he goes down to the floor of this network and he's trying to, I don't know, rally the troops and try to see if he can get them to do their best work. And he starts by keeps calling them pirates. You know, Brian Cox yeah. and that grump voice goes, you're all pirates, you know, and he's go, you're we're going to ask the tough questions and, and tell the stories that nobody wants to talk about and do the hard research. And we're going to work hard and do those different kinds of things. And you're all pirates. And I feel like a lot of the proudest moments that I had at the station was when myself and other people working at the station acted like pirates. Mm -hmm. I think there was an era of WRHU that preceded the transition to the, you still call it the new building, I know, because yep, I've heard yep. you say it, to the, the newer facilities. 
as opposed to where it was in the little theater and where it was in the basement of Memorial Hall. And I think in its infancy, in its early stages, the way the station survived is because everyone acted like pirates. You didn't know how you were going to get a thing on the air, but you found a way to do it. This thing broke at the last minute, and with spit and duct tape, you put it together and you made it work. Or, well, we really weren't supposed to run the phone line that way to get this sports program, uh, this this game broadcast, but we ran a cable 700 yards from one place (laughs) to the next place over the field and put it on the air. There were always these moments where it was... This has to get done. This has to get on the air. We don't know how we're going to do it by, by hook or by crook because we're pirates. We're going to do it. Um, and I felt like that spirit kind of pervaded the early, whether it was uh, Jeff Krause, the stories that have been told of Jeff Krause uh, um, saying, hey, listen, we're all just going to stand outside and maybe pick it outside the radio station and mm-hmm. do a telethon to earn enough money or bring enough interest or get the sta- uh, uh, the, the university to um, uh, approve of allowing the station to continue. Um, you had to get there by being pirates. Or there was a professional radio station that was getting rid of some of its equipment. Fine, we'll take it. We'll make use out of it. It was all that kind of stuff where you found a way to get it together. But when you turn on 88.7, nobody knew any of that. Mm-hmm. nobody knew any of that, but we all knew the work that you had to do behind the scenes to get there. And there was one thing that came to mind, another one of these Anton ego moments I'll, I'll throw at you is um, there was a charity basketball game. And I think I had just become producer of the rock show. It was a charity basketball game where some people from Hofstra were playing against the guys from WFAN. And this was at the height of WFAN. Uh, I think Don Imus had just, uh, they had just, moved over maybe to an FM type of thing, or they just took over one of the big AM transmitters. And it was a huge kind of thing. I think they merged with WNBC at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were all told that, look, these guys aren't basketball players. They don't want a TV broadcast of this. They don't want a radio broadcast of this. It's just a fundraiser to do whatever. But I'm thinking as the producer of this rock show, it'd be great to have like, you know, Chris Russo, Mike Francesa, these guys maybe record a couple of sounders for the rock show. Hey, I'm listening to 88.7, whatever. It'll be a good thing. But we were told not to do it. They they didn't want that. They didn't mm. want, the guys didn't want to be bothered doing that. They just wanted to play the game, maybe sign a couple of autographs and go about their way, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So what did I do? I put on a jacket. I took my handheld little tape recorder and I ran a little microphone cable up my wrist and taped the microphone to my wrist and put, put on a coat and said, I'm going to try to get down to the court. And I'm going to try to see what I can do. Oh, no. Because, uh, because, you, uh, because we're pirates. Um, and I'll be honest with you, it wasn't really that hard to sneak down to the court. And then the other thing about it was once I got down there and started to talk to the guys, they had no problem. I mean, I wrote up on little index cards, little scripts for them to say. Um, uh, uh, Chris Russo used to call things a travesty. So I, used to, I, I, I gave him something about talking about the travesty of... Uh, the world of sports. I listened to <laughs> classic rock on 88.7 WRHU. I told Francesca to say, I'm holding the leash on the mad dog, little phrases and stuff. I personally think looking back on it now, they probably got a kick out of it. Like, Hey, this kid did the work, right. came down there. He goes, well, what are we recording it into? And I, I would, I said, don't worry about it. I was just running the, the tape. I wasn't, you know, I was just running the tape and I was just holding out my hand to them just to kind of get whatever I could. Um, they couldn't have been, Brian, they couldn't have been nicer. Mm. They couldn't have been nicer. Um, Chris Russo, uh, if anyone's ever met him, 
that energy that he has, that he exudes, that uh, um, when you meet him, it comes across. When you see him on television and that kind of thing, that that, that kind of, you, you get it when you meet him in person. And he read the script in an animated kind of thing. And I think he said, W-R-H-U, and he said it in a colorful way. And then a couple of feet away, Mike Francesa is sort of looking over his shoulder, what's going on? Mm-hmm. And Mike's like, well, if Chris is going to do one of these, I'm going to do one of these because that's the way they were. And I'm like looking over my shoulder. I'm going, when I'm done with Chris, I got to get Mike. I got to get Mike. And so Mike was there. And Mike repeated the way Chris said the call letters the exact same way. And then Mike read it once and then went, I wasn't happy with that. I've got to read it again. And I'm like, these are, this is what a pro is. This is what a pro is. And Mike was talking to me about how things like when you count down three, two, one and start, a lot of people will count down three, two, one, and then start talking right away. We well, are not leaving yeah. enough time to do the edit. You have to count three, two, one, and do it in the same beat. I, I'm sure I might have learned that in an announcing class or in my engineering classes, but I didn't know it at that time that he said that. So he's giving me tips. He's like, I don't like the way that came out. I want to read it a second time. I'm like, I wasn't even supposed to be down here on the court. And these guys are giving me like amazing stuff. And then the game was over. I went to talk to Mike Breen, um, the um, now immortal Mike Breen, but at the time he was just, you know, doing. A couple of uh, uh, a couple of Knicks games. Things, I don't even yeah. know the name of the Knicks games, but he was on Don Imus's show, and we spoke for a few minutes about the timing uh, involved in that. Uh, and I, I mean, I think they all got a kick out of it. And it was one of those situations, uh, Brian, where I said to myself, "This is going to be so much easier if I just apologize for this afterwards than ask permission to do it to begin with." Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to go down there and get what I need to get. And then I cut everything together and put the stuff out there. And I don't remember Jeff saying word one about it. We were all told, don't do it. And I did it anyway, because we're pirates. So I was always kind of proud. I was really kind of proud of it. I really was kind of proud of that. I was proud of that, like that, like, you know, that was kind of one of those moments where it was like, but this would be cool for the, the, the rock show to kind of have these little sounders. And I know we're not supposed to do it, but let's just do it anyway and find out what's the worst thing that could happen. And I think a lot of us kind of felt that kind of spirit in the earlier days and that, that, you know, of the station, you know, you're down in the basement. They had just built, I guess, maybe in the late eighties, early nineties, the brand new TV studios. So the TV people had a little bit more of a kind of a status. And it was like, well, where's the radio station? I was still down there. It was kind of like, maybe like the little engine that could kind of mentality. Um, but it's because of those early days and because of that pirate spirit that we all had that I think that is what kept the station going and allowed it to evolve to the perennial Marconi winning uh, 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 college station that it is now. In other words, Bruce was able to kind of move it forward because of that spirit that we all had in those earlier days. I don't know if that makes any sense, but that's kind of the way I feel about it. No, amen. Amen. I, I agree 100% with that. Um, is there a song or an event or something that happened that defines your time at the station? I would definitely say that event that I just described was probably a big one, but, um, in speaking about the craft a little bit, uh, I did, I think it was my senior year, I did an interview with uh, Dave LaLama's brother, Ralph. Uh, Dave was a Mm -hmm. jazz professor at Hofstra for many, many years. And Ralph, a tenor saxophone player, was with the Vanguard Jazz Orchestra, played with Buddy Rich's group, Woody Herman's group, as a list of credits a mile long, just tremendous. And Dave, through all of his connections, was always able to bring in 
um, a guest artist uh, to to work with us in the spring. Um, to be honest with you, in many ways, it almost turned into a, a concert for them with the jazz band as their backup group. Wow. But be that as it may, it was kind of cool. And I remember I was still doing, I think it was probably still called the Jazz Cafe. And I remember speaking to whoever the producer was and said, hey, could I do an interview? I'd really like to do an interview. Um, for a number of different reasons, A, because I thought it would be cool. I think it would be good for the jazz program, but also because I really felt like I was still trying to hone my skills in that aspect of being an interviewer. Um, I'm sure you've been told this a number of times, but if you probably can hear this, it, it should hear this again. One of your greatest gifts in doing this podcast is that you are asking really good questions and then you're actually taking the time to listen to the answers. <laughs> I can't tell you how many interviews that I did earlier on. I started as a journalism major where I would ask the question and as the person was giving the answer, I was already thinking about what the next thing I was going to ask. Right. It wasn't a dialogue. It wasn't a conversation. It wasn't an interaction between two people and it wasn't any kind of a feedback. It was, I have things that I need to ask. I remember doing an interview um, maybe early in my sophomore year where I, I hoodwinked Jeff Krause into doing an interview uh, with me. Um, and I, I wonder if I have an air check of that somewhere. I'd love to, I, if, if I do have that air check, I'll send it along with you. Please. Um, and Jeff just tore me apart. Jeff just absolutely tore me apart because it was one of those kinds of things. I had an agenda. I had things that I wanted to ask. I had a feature thing that I was going to write for this class and I was going to make sure that those questions suited my, my particular point of view. And Jeff put me right in my place. And I had done some interviews like that where I was like, why am I failing at this? What is, what's wrong that's happening? And I thought, you know, let me get, I need to give this another try. And I went to Dave and I said to Dave, I said, do you think Ralph would do an interview? And he said, probably not. That's not Ralph's thing, but you're more than welcome to go ahead and ask him. And I said, well, Dave, I thought it would be cool if you asked him. So I'm not gonna, <laughs> Dave, 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 Dave used very colorful language all the time. And Dave said, you go bleep and ask him. So I went to ask Ralph and Ralph's response is what you would expect. Well, what the hell am I going to talk to you about for an hour? Like this and the other thing. I said, well, we'll just have a conversation about music, about this kind of thing. He goes, yeah, I guess, sure. Yeah, I'll come down. We made the thing. And it was one of those moments where I really felt like I got it. I kind of went in with a couple of things I wanted to talk to him about, but I kind of let him lead where the conversation went. Um, he had some very interesting things to say about Buddy Rich. He had some interesting things to say about the mouthpieces that he's using or his approach to soloing or um, how many choruses for soloists is too many. It was, it was a lot of stuff. And the, my favorite part, I think, about the interview is how little of me there is on the interview, if that makes any sense at all. 100%. Um, so, and I thought it was great. And I just, it, it was one of those few moments where you kind of do a thing and you don't know whether anybody's going to really pay that much attention to it. And I did have some some colleagues at the radio station and colleagues in the music department, including some members of the faculty going, hey, heard that interview. You did a really, really good job with that. Um, and that was, you know, cloud nine moment, really cloud nine moment for me. So that really, I kind of felt like that was a point in my kind of very short career doing radio where I, I really felt like, okay, I, I, I think I did that one right. I think I got that one right. Yeah, it sounds like it. Um, was there ever a moment during your time where, you know, you're waking up at five o'clock in the morning for two years in a row and you think, I don't want to do this anymore, or I don't want to be involved in the politics, mm -hmm. or, you know, is there any time that you thought, uh, I'm going to walk away from the station? Wow. Uh, 
I don't really think so because, you know, Brian, for, for me, it really always was a labor of love from the very, very beginning. I mean, I went into Hofstra as an undecided major, and then I switched to communications, um, did that for a year. And then uh, my old high school band director uh, called me up and said, hey, do you want to do some work here? And I'm sure you can relate to this. And anyone who's done teaching and, and understands what a calling it truly is, mm -hmm. um, you start doing it, you get addicted to doing it, you love the challenge of it, you love the um, the obligation that you have to the students that you work with. And then once you get that bug, you kind of have it. So once I made that transition to music ed, um, I knew that my work at the radio station was going to be a major part of my experience at Hofstra University, but it just, it wasn't my career choice. So I was in the really enviable position of being able to say, Hey, I really love doing this. I don't mind getting up early in the morning to do the uh, good morning Hofstra. I don't mind doing the Friday night show. Listen, I mean, there were times doing that Friday night show where it was a real drag, where a buddy of mine was like, Hey, we need a saxophone player to come do this gig at the brokerage. Are you available? It's fr and I said, please tell me it's not Friday night. And they would say it's Friday night. Say, I'm mm -hmm. sorry, I can't do that gig. Cause a doing the show every Friday night for, um, it might've been five years, maybe six years. Um, you know, a lot of things go on on Friday nights like cramped and, your style, yeah. and getting somebody to cover that Friday night show. If you couldn't do it was a very difficult thing to do. There were often many instances where the person who was supposed to be there at 11 o'clock to do airwave for whatever reason or not, wasn't there. And what were you going to do? So you were on, you did the 11 to one and me being a fish out of water with that format. I don't know. I was playing smithereens records. They might be giants, REM, whatever I could find as a fail safe, but it certainly wasn't someone who was learned in that format at all. Um, but, you know, so you did it. So there were a couple of times, especially once I had graduated and then I had had that one-to-one -one with Bruce and Bruce said, look, we, we, we want this to be a training ground. We want the students to be doing this. And I kind of said to Bruce, I said, as soon as you find somebody, let me know. Um, during that interim period where I was just kind of like, look, I got a job now. I got a thing to do here. I mean, it's not that I don't enjoy doing this, but I was kind of ready to move on. But for the most part, no, I really, listen, there were tremendous people there. It was always wonderful going there. It was always wonderful working at the station. I never had any, um, any moments where I was just like, and, and, and you know what, the, again, I, I, I'm the type of person, uh, to kind of distance myself from those politics, uh, when those things kind of came up. So I, I just kind of kept my nose clean. Um, this is a sort of side question that, that, that I had, uh, we talked before we started recording. Um, I was always curious that you didn't run for station manager or, or, uh, program director in your upperclassmen years. Was that because yeah. you enjoyed the, the morning show so much, or is it just something you weren't interested in? I, I believed very, very strongly that people needed those titles on their resume in order to further their career choices and their career options. And there were also tremendously capable people running the station. So there was never a point where I really felt like, you know, that was something, whereas, you know, uh, in, in education where you student teach and you're going to different things and you're making connections and you're trying to work in districts and you're trying to sub and you're trying to get known with the people who are going to be doing the hiring and firing when you're out there looking for a gig. Um, for me to take on a position like that as someone who was not looking to go into that in the profession, I didn't really feel that that was appropriate for me mm. to do. Um, would I have 
love to do sure of course but i wouldn't feel it was appropriate plus uh if i'm being very very honest um you know i went into music ed and um and, and you know this very well from being a teacher um if you want to make being an educator a 24 hour a day seven day a week vocation you can do it and it's not that difficult. Right. Um, there's always more lesson prep that you can do. There's always more practicing they can do as a music educator. There's always more score study you can do. For me, uh, as someone who went into uh, high school, uh, a junior year of high school, I started taking piano lessons, and then I got to college, and I said, "No, oh, that that's going to be my primary instrument." And I'm not competing against other people, but my the expectations amongst the faculty is that I'm going to have the facility of someone who's been playing the piano since they were four or five years old, which I didn't. So there was a lot of time that I had to spend uh, in the basement, in another basement of Low mm -hmm. Hall, practicing my instrument, and I was still playing saxophone in the jazz ensemble. So th it was just a lot of time. So I also felt like I was spending a lot of time at the radio station, but if you were going to be program director, station manager, you had to be willing to live there. Um, and I just had too much respect for all the people who came before me. Uh, and there was no way that if I was ever going to consider that, that I wouldn't have wanted to give a hundred percent of me. And that was not something I think they really felt like I had the time to do. In fact, doing the morning show was perfect from the standpoint of you got up early, you did the show, maybe the show was on from seven to nine, and then you went it throughout your day. Yeah. And that allowed me to do something really significant that I really enjoy doing, but then also gave me the the opportunity to do all the other things I had to do at school the rest of the day. Um, if you could go back and give 18-year-old Joe Romano some advice, you only have 30 seconds, 60 seconds, it's not life-altering, what sort of advice would you give your younger self? This is always a tough one for me, Brian. I, I don't really know if I'd give my younger self any advice. Um, Cause even if I did, I don't think my younger self would follow it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're a product of our experiences. We learn from taking risks, usually in our younger years. Uh, and most importantly, we, we learn from our mistakes. So, I don't know. I think if I were to give any advice to my younger self, maybe it would have just been take a few more risks, say carpe diem a little bit more, take mm. some more chances, fall on your face a little bit more, try to get up stronger. Yeah. But to be honest with you, I mean, I consider myself, we've spoken off of the podcast at, at times, uh, so blessed to have had the life that I've had I spent the last 30 years in a career that I love, uh, working with amazing people and building relationships that I will cherish forever. So I don't know, whatever that young whippersnapper did in college, it, that led me to where I am right now. So I don't know. Uh, truthfully, I don't think I would tell my younger self much of anything. Okay. <laughs> so speaking of that young whippersnapper and that, that, uh, that growing adult there, what's the funniest thing? that ever happened or something that always makes you laugh about your time at the station? Oh man. Well, okay. Uh, some people listening to this know me and my personality and my physical appearance and so forth. Uh, in the fall of 92, Sue Zizza had the notion that it probably would be good for publicity for the morning show. If, I was nominated for Homecoming King. Wow. And I think I think Sarah Sterling was also nominated to be 
homecoming queen. I'm not entirely sure, but when she does the interview that she has to do, uh, maybe she'll tell you for sure. First of all, you know what they say in comedy that, that if you believe in the initial premise and the initial premise is funny, that everything else that you say after the initial premise is going to be funny. Uh Well, for me, and doing the morning show, the premise of me being a candidate for homecoming king was so bloody hilarious that anything we would say about it uh, during the, the couple of weeks prior to the interviews and the process and the whole kind of thing was for me hilarious. And I had a ball with it in particular, not just the 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 fodder that he gave us material for the for the morning show, which was great because you were always looking for something. But going in and doing the interview with the big table and the panel of dignitaries and alumni and people and me walking in and I'm thinking to myself, look, there's no way I'm getting this. They know there's no way I'm getting this. So we might as well have a good time while we're at it. So I don't think I really dressed up for it. I think I might have come in wearing my my, my uh, Hofstra pepan jacket or something like that. I just said, screw this. Go in. And I remember sitting back. They had one of those chairs where you could kind of lean back and putting my hands behind my head. And I just went like, all right, let's go. Talk. <laughs> and I just went in and did the whole interview like, it's a fait accompli. I've already got homecoming king. I've already won this thing. Why are we even bothering to interview everybody else? And I definitely know that they sensed it. And I definitely know that they had a good time doing the interview as well. But I just thought from minute one, first of all, it was a brilliant idea from Sue to to have us be candidates. And it was great for material. But for me, I just thought it was the funniest thing in the world. And the notion of me being a candidate for homecoming king, I thought was just hysterical. Um, and I chuckle about it every time I think about it. Uh, the other really hilarious thing, I don't know if there's an air check of this. Uh, this probably will never happen ever again in the history of, of WRHU because now it is a fully staffed, well-oiled machine. But there was a point during an intercession where there was a women's basketball game and they had nobody. I mean, they had nobody. And I was not part of one of the sports guys. I did not do a lot of sports stuff, but they had nobody. And I remember John Booty always saying to me, I would love to just call a game. It's just something I'd always love to do. And I was always like, John, you should totally do it. You're engineering everybody's program in the world. You're amazing. Of course you should do this. And him feeling insecure about it, et cetera. I remember just being in the WRHU office and this coming up and saying, we have nobody for Friday nights, women's game, this, that, and the other thing. And you know how it's like your hand comes up and you say, I'll do it. But as you're doing it, you're going, wait a minute. I just raised my hand up in the air to say, I'm going to do color commentary for a women's basketball game. Like, do I have any idea what I'm doing? The answer is no. I'm going to completely wing it. And I went, I'll do it. I know John will do the play-by-play. Booty will do the play-by-play. And they're like, fine, we need somebody to go do it. John and I had a blast doing it with uh, varying levels of competence, I would imagine. Um, But we had a blast. I thought the whole thing was hysterical. I think we were more than fish out of of water. Uh, And we did our best effort. But that was fun. That for me was fun. That for me was a lot of fun. And I had fun the entire time. And the best part about it was it was very liberating to be on the air and say, okay, um, 
I follow sports. I have some idea about what the game of basketball is, and I'm going to do my best to try to call this and do my list of numbers. I just thought those those two things stick out to me as just being really, really just funny moments um, um, and things that I'll 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 really cherish. Hmm. Um, here's a hypothetical along those lines. You get a call from John Mullen. I need someone to come in and do a jazz shift or a rock shift. Technology aside, are you going to go do it? Yeah, hundred percent. Good, that's the right answer. Yeah, um, not, no, no questions asked. When they did the um, the fiftieth anniversary uh, 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 thing, um, I came in and, and took one of my old ten and ten scripts, and uh, um, I'm trying to remember who engineered for me, but it was um, uh, about as much fun as I've had doing anything over the past. <laughs> You know, that's a was that's a long time ago now. That fifty, yeah. that fifty, it was a maybe a fifty at fifty kind of thing where they did fifty shows and they did that broadcast. Exactly. It was great going back there and doing that. Was that just, uh, just two thousand nine, maybe? Is that right? Yeah, I think that's just an absolute an an absolute scream. And there was nothing again, nothing about that experience. There are great experiences where you are working your ass off but you're also having the time of your life while you're working your ass off. And those are just such rare and precious things um, that when you get them, uh, the opportunity to, to do it again, 100%. Along those lines, I think I know the answer to this, or at least ballpark. What do you miss most about WRHU? Uh, I think you we mentioned this during the interview, but... Um, the craft of it, the intellectual exercise of the segue, you know, calculating in your head before it happens, the way in which you envision a song connecting to another. And I, I, I can, I, I don't remember the titles of the tunes, but, but when you recounted that story to me, that was a series of tunes that could only be done with a cut you couldn't crossfade those and it had to do with the rhythmical it ended cold and the other one started cold and they were both percussive and that's why that worked but being creative in your head and saying this is how this song will connect to the other song um doing things like you know uh when i would do the 10 at 10 and trying to come up with phrases writing scripts um I used to end shows by saying um no matter where you go, there you are. Mm -hmm. No matter where you are, you're just moments away from being where you've been. Uh, saying something was relatively recent. Trying to come up with little ways to get people's attention with while you were reading that kind of stuff. And you know what? I never minded sitting in that A-Track studio with reel-to-reel -reel tape and splicing it then reattaching it and then splicing it again to a lightly different spot to, to get it exactly right. Um, I, 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 I did, I love that stuff. I recall using, uh, for the intro of that 10 at 10 show, you know, the demo that we all got of Jeff, uh, saying the numbers mm -hmm. and you have it, it together and making sure he counted it down from 10 to one. I remember completing that assignment and then saying, uh, I'm doing a show called the 10 at 10. How great would this be to have him counting down from 10 to one? And I just did all that work. I got to use this. Um, what I ended up doing is just from a timing standpoint is I ended up speeding up Jeff's voice. I think he's at one and a half speed to time it out. I think I used, um, there's an orchestral crescendo in the Beatles, a day in the life. And it just hit a cold cut right at that spot. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm not sure if anybody 
knew that at all, or I certainly don't think Jeff knew that, but Jeff is in the intro to the 10 of 10 counting backwards, just it sounds a little bit like a chipmunk uh, counting out the numbers. But I love little stuff like that. Um, that just a little adrenaline rush that you got when you flipped on the microphone, you were on the air and that responsibility that you felt uh, to complete strangers who were tuning in that you just wanted to put on a good show for them. You just wanted to do a good job. All of those aspects. Um, and just, you know, hanging around the station, just being around uh, the ladies and gentlemen at the station and, and, and at those interactions of uh, being around smart, passionate people um, who gave a damn about something. It's just, you know, that's, that's precious. I mean, at, at a point, um, <laughs> I was listening to an interview with a, uh, uh, our my Levittown hero, Mr. Billy Joel, mm-hmm. where uh, I think it was inside the actor's studio and the, the guy Lipton asked him a question about, hey, Billy Joel, what turns you on at this point in your life? And he, he, he said, he goes, you know, I'm at a point in my age in my life where competence turns me on. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I get it. Like just being around people who just got stuff done and cared about what they were doing and were competent in what they were doing and were passionate about it. Um, I I took so many of those lessons from being at that radio station that have you know carried me through thirty years later. Yeah, that's that's my last question. Is you know, obviously this meant so much to you and gave you so much. Uh, what did you bring from Hofstra Radio into your professional and grown up life? So many things. You do a radio show and you're on the air. It prepares you for speaking in front of a microphone in general, which when you're doing concerts for the public, I'm a, a spent the past 30 years in the Levittown Public Schools. Past 28 years, I've been the high school band director at, uh, at MacArthur High School. So you're doing concerts, you're speaking in public in front of an audience, you're speaking in front of a microphone, you're running a jazz ensemble, and you have to run your sound system and work with amplifiers and have a comfort level with the technology and you're doing lighting and sound for your performances and things. And these are all things that I developed a comfort level with at the radio station so that when I got out into that professional world, I had so many of those skills that so many in my profession struggle with quite a lot because it's not necessarily what they're teaching you in music ed school. Mm -hmm. Um, The idea of writing for radio uh, uh, and writing in general, uh, I'm currently a corresponding secretary for uh, my teachers union. And that involves doing a monthly newsletter and writing articles and uh, uh, political things and PR and so on and so forth. And, you know, you weren't not only pulling copy from that AP machine, but then you were also rewriting it in your words in your language and making decisions on what to edit and what to leave in and what to leave out and how to make this fit and how to make this work in the one minute that you had to to read the, those kinds of news those kind of editorial decisions that you make as a writer that you need almost every day in your in your job uh, as as an educator um the, the the genesis of that was the work that I did at Hofstra and specifically at that radio station and specifically doing that morning show those couple of mornings and mm-hmm. I'll also say I mean listen uh, as teachers, as a high school teacher, I'm up really early. So I got into that mode of being comfortable, being up really early and being able to be, you know, on and, and, and doing my job and, uh, putting on that 
happy face that you have to as a teacher yeah. sometimes. Yeah. Um, no time. And doing those two years at Good Morning Hofstra was in, in many ways preparation for that uh, as well. So, so Brian, so many things, so many things uh, uh, would uh, where the work at the station just helped me so much in the career that I chose. Joe, this has been tremendous. I had such high expectations for this interview. When I emailed you, I was like, yes, I can't wait to talk to him about this. And this is so far exceeded that. I'm so grateful uh, for all your kind words, but really for your stories and your enthusiasm and just just the love of uh, the station and all things that go with it. Thank you so much. Well, I just want to say that the work that you've done on this show is exactly that same kind of spirit that has made WRHU the precious place that it has been for so many years. And watching your work and listening to these interviews and seeing, I felt motivated coming into this interview to make sure that I tried to prepare in the same way that I felt walking in as a freshman in 1989 and seeing that leadership and that level of professionalism and that level of witness and saying, this is something you have to take seriously. And we've talked about those Anton ego moments, my friend, and it was the same kind of thing saying, wait a minute, Brian's now doing volume two. This is a tremendous amount of work. This is tremendously important work. And it's very, very meaningful for the history of the station. And he's taking it seriously and he's going to bring it. And if you're not ready to bring it, then don't even bother answering the email. Um, but that's part and parcel of how I felt about the radio station from minute one hmm. uh, and still feel to this day. Man, thank you so much. This is, uh, this is tremendous. I, I feel like I've got to come up with another set of questions because I want to hear more stories. I don't know. I don't know if I'm up to it, but, but it's definitely inspirational. I want, I want more. That's, that's awesome. Awesome. And listen, you, you, you have a fan and a listener for as long as you keep putting these things out. I've listened to everyone and I will listen to everyone. And um, I'm enjoying it maybe almost as much as you are <laughs> in doing the interviews. Maybe not as much, but I'm really, uh, the, 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 this, this whole thing, this whole project that you're doing is awesome. So thank you. Thanks, man.